My name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. Shocktober, November. How? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, folks. We uh, we failed you this year. But uh, listen, you are getting four Shocktober episodes, even though you're clearly already gearing up for Christmas. Yeah, that's right. Once that November second hits, it's time for Christmas preparations. Oh no, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Let's face it. You can enjoy horror movies any time of the year. So just uh, pretend, just pretend it's still October 30th and we're delivering this episode to you on time because we're going to talk about one of the kings of horror, one of the OGs, a man named Dracula. Not Bela Lugosi's Dracula. No, no, no. We're talking about Hammer Horror, a.k.a. Christopher Lee's Dracula. And let's be specific right off the top. We're only going to be talking about the Christopher Lee ones. No Captain Kronos Vampire Hunters or the sexy Ingrid Pitt late period Hammer films. I think me and Will, we both basically stayed in the Christopher Lee lane. You know, Hammer, I mean, it was a whole movie studio. It's too vast to encompass in just one episode. Even their vampire movies are too vast to encompass in just one episode. So, yes, we're focusing on the Hammer Dracula series, which, rightly or wrongly, is the franchise that defines Hammer in the popular imagination. Now, we've talked about Hammer before, but... We're very honest when this subject comes up is that me and Will, not even close to being beginners on this subject. These are films that we watch dutifully as any film fan would. But they were never my favorites, and they're never ones that I explored that much. If you got into Euro horror through, like, the Italians, like Dario Argento or Lucio Fulci, or even some of the, even people like Jean Roland or uh, Jess Franco, the uh, Hammer horror movies will sometimes look a little restrained. But if you were in Britain in 1958, or if you were an American kid who saw Horror of Dracula on TV in the years immediately following it, these Dracula movies really did pop. And that's something I'd like to explore on this episode is, is why did they pop? Well, they were delivering all of the stuff that the universal horror films just touched upon. Universal horror films are sometimes a little bit embarrassed to have monsters featured in them. While the Hammer horror films, they just put it out right there on Front Street. Like if we start with the first Dracula picture, it begins with a push-in to Dracula's coffin, which Dracula's written right on, so you know what movie you're watching, and then blood splatters on it, that classic red paint hammer blood. That's all a kid that's watched all of those Universal movies in the million-dollar movie slot for years wants to see. And this is important to remember. As I say, the content of these movies will look pretty restrained to most people watching them today. In 1958, when the first Hammer Dracula was made, the classic Universal Monster movies of the 30s and 40s were now being shown regularly on TV. And here came this movie that offered a very distinctive twist on the story and the iconography and was in ripe color and had blood and it had cleavage and it had some very heavy sexual suggestiveness. As Joe Dante says in, I'm sure, the dozens of Hammer documentaries that he shows up in, I watched one of them, these Hammer horror films were special because they could be seen in movie theaters, while the Universal films had kind of been doomed to constant syndication on television. These Hammer horror films, even this first Dracula one, it's a kind of movie that, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s on the playground, you would tell your friends, oh my God, 
you won't believe that the Dracula film where Dracula not only sucks blood, but you see the blood dripping from his fangs in close up on camera. And the power of that cannot be minimized. Like it is really important as to why these movies had as much impact as they did. Not to say that they're bad movies either, because they're very handsomely, gorgeously shot but I think that a lot of their impact kind of traces back to the fact that they were doing that and they did it first. Yeah, the 1931 Bela Lugosi Dracula film. I mean, he gets killed off screen at the end. You know, you don't see the stake. You don't see that. You don't see it go in. You just hear a gasp from off screen. These movies. Yeah, you see the stake go in. And not only does the stake go in, but it fucking penetrates in all senses of the word, you know? These movies, the Hammer Dracula ones, have certain themes that run throughout them, you know? They are repeatedly movies about old Victorian-era men trying to protect their ripe, virginal blonde daughters from a menace, whether it be, you know, boys at the local tavern or uh, this Dracula who's who's lurking around. Many film critics or film academics will argue that, like, you know, Bella was kind of pasty, not that handsome. I mean, I tend to disagree, but... I think he's beautiful. Come on. Christopher Lee, like, on screen as Dracula, I mean, he's a fuck machine. Like, look at that handsome dude. Even with his blood red eyes and the blood dripping from his fangs. From the get-go in this first Dracula film from 1958, all the women just want to have sex with Dracula. They can't wait to do it. In the popular imagination, Dracula was, and to a large degree still is, defined by Bela Lugosi. Every Dracula is a reaction to him in some way, kind of like how every James Bond is a reaction to Sean Connery. And Lugosi, in that first one, has this very regal and aristocratic bearing. He also integrated into society. He posed as a normal person. He was he was very gentlemanly, but that was just a cover for his true nature. You know, he was a guy who crept up on women at night. But Christopher Lee, who also has, you know, a regal bearing, tall and handsome, but he has no interest in passing as a human. He doesn't sneak up on women. He opens the window and he stares at them, and, and he's down to fuck, and they're down to fuck. And I think it's also important to note that uh, both Bela Lugosi and Max Schreck in Nosferatu are kind of coded as foreign invaders, but Christopher Lee is British. He's this sickness from within. Spoiler, he's symbolic of the sexual revolution. I was surprised rewatching these films that Christopher Lee is such a powerful presence but he's also a very primal one. Like, he does have some lines of dialogue in the first one, but it seems to be tossed away very quickly for him to just be a force to get the women to come towards him. And even that kind of big regal-like pose that he has in the opening few minutes kind of boils away to kind of a monstrous in-your-face power. Like, there's a reason that the iconic image of this film is him leaning into camera, blood-red eyes, fangs out blood dripping from his face right before he like jumps over a table to grab one of his brides like that is the hammer christopher lee dracula he can be suave i mean he looks suave but it's really about him as a force of nature he's so good in the first one the 1958 one because at times he's a very minimalist screen presence he does a lot with his eyes 
He stares at his prey. He stares at the camera. It's like he's staring at you, hypnotizing you with those eyes and the way that he holds his body, the stillness. But then when he attacks, when he bares his fangs, yeah, he feels very animalistic. There's something very pickup artist about him. I think that it helps that these films are within the confines of the stuffy British uh, style, if you will. Like Terrence Fisher, when people talk about him as a director, they like to say, oh, he didn't like to move his camera very much. He liked to shoot things wide. And that doesn't mean that he's not stylish because he is, but it's also a very classical direction. And that when you hold that up against Christopher Lee's performance and the portrayal of this vicious Dracula, it only underlines and maximizes, you know, the differences that you expect from all the Draculas that you've seen before this point. Now, can I also just say that if you watch all these movies, you quickly see, I think, Christopher Lee evolved from being this very powerful minimalist screen presence to just being pretty lazy. Uh, is that is that unfair to say? Uh, I wouldn't say that's unfair to say. I mean, you'd probably be that way too if you had to play like seven Dracula roles. I know you didn't watch the second Dracula film, Dracula Prince of Darkness. I mean, I have seen it, you know, not lately, but I've seen it. Have we seen these Hammer horror <laughs> yeah. films? Like every time a new one starts, I'm like, have I seen this one? Yeah. But what's interesting about that one is they completely uh, eject any dialogue for Christopher Lee. And that one he is pure animal just the dracula that's supposed to come in through your window and bite your very supple female neck there is nothing else no talking no him trying to pass off he's like just animal and that's all he is and they would pull away from that i feel because you know there's not that uh, many other ways to approach that so you do that kind of lazy oh i guess dracula's here again and he's not in many of these movies which is a kind of disappointing for how defined christopher lee is by this role is that a lot of these films where the dracula uh, titular character is in the title he's got what 10 minutes of screen time if that well in the first one 1958's dracula also known as horror of dracula like it works because he's like the shark in Jaws, you know? He looms over the movie. Uh, when he does appear, I mean, so much of the movie is spent with Peter Cushing and Michael Goff being, you know, uh, very British. What do you think of Peter Cushing in this role? Because he is the other constant in these Dracula films as Van Helsing. I, I like Peter Cushing. Who doesn't like Peter Cushing? But I think it's I think it's fair to say that he's, he's the straight man, right? He doesn't get to be the madman that he does in the Frankenstein films where he gets to play Victor Frankenstein. Christopher Lee, like... It it works that he doesn't have that much screen time in the first movie. I mean, when he appears in the first movie, like he's electric. But then I think also it's hard to maintain the novelty of that over seven or eight movies. Obviously, Christopher Lee himself has a certain amount of like God-given charisma and screen presence that anytime he's on screen in any one of these movies, you're looking at him, you're enjoying his presence. But I think by the time you get to maybe taste the blood of Dracula, certainly by the time you get to Dracula AD 1972, you sense that his heart isn't really I mean, it. taste the blood of Dracula, they basically forced him into that picture that it was supposed to be unconnected from the Dracula series and then a producer came up to him and was like please Christopher you gotta appear in this otherwise it won't have any chance to get out there I mean in classic studio making these films kind of way after the hit of horror of Dracula they're like well we don't need to bring uh, Christopher Lee back let's do Brides of Dracula which people very much like but then you know I guess the fans demanded it Christopher Lee slapped those fangs on 
you're back in here with Dracula, Prince of Darkness in 1966, which then led to a whole series of Dracula films that I look at the titles and go, did I see that one? Which is the one where Peter Cushing uses a windmill to form a giant cross. None of the ones I watched for this one, but... I know that we both watched Taste the Blood of Dracula from 1970, which, as you mentioned, you definitely feel a tired Christopher Lee in this. As always, kind of wish that I didn't watch four of these movies all in two days, because, you know, when you space them out, you can appreciate them a little bit better. <laughs> you know, you're not just seeing the same movie over and over again. But I mean, I do think Taste the Blood of Dracula from 1970 is is one of the better ones, maybe. Do you disagree? I mean, it just felt like all of the other ones while watching it. I mean, these have a real weird issue as far as sequels go, where I kept repeating, like, when are we getting to the Dracula factory? Like, the first one really understood that everybody watching this film knows who Dracula is. So here he is. You know what he does. There's not even really that much air of mystery while all of the ones after that do the like, well, we got to spend 50 minutes before Dracula gets resurrected. And it's like, what are you doing? Just have Christopher Lee break through a window in the first five minutes. That's what we want. And they all like kind of have a similar plot. I mean, not to overgeneralize, but it's always like, mm -hmm. yeah, some stuffy old Victorian nobleman has a blonde daughter and... You know, she's in these really tight Victorian clothing and there's a lot of cleavage and there's a, there's a Dracula circling around and the old men are kind of like they're overprotective. They're overbearing. They're not with the times. If you overprotect your beautiful blonde daughters, well, they'll just fall into the darkness even more if you let that happen. Um, and then there's always like there's a visual dichotomy created between the manners, which are very overdressed and very handsome looking and a lot of over decoration and they look very rich. And then there's always like a boozy tavern just down the road or in Taste the Blood of Dracula, it's actually a brothel, which the hypocritical old men frequent at night. And there's a sort of dichotomy created there. And it's like the sex and the decadence that's represented by the brothel and the tavern is always sort of safely contained there until Dracula comes. And that's this like threatening force that that threatens to, you know, in, in metaphoric terms, bust the sexual revolution wide open. So it's it's not just in the red light district anymore. It's 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 coming for your daughters. Like it, like that's basically what all these movies are, right? Yeah, they are. But I find as they go on, they tend to like sequester Dracula in his own corner in very baffling ways that I could only imagine is because maybe Christopher Lee only gave them a couple days to make these movies. I guess so. You want him in this world, this normality and being Dracula doing his thing. And he oftentimes seems to be like luring the victims to him, which creates this kind of dissonance in you want Dracula infecting this world. You watch Dracula has risen from the grave. And from your review, it sounds like more Dracula, yeah, right? There's, there's a certain amount of Dracula in it. They, a lot of them have basically about the same amount of Dracula. Dracula's really never in them for more than 10 minutes. There's the first run of movies that are all set in Victorian times. And then Hammer obviously is realizing that it's running out of ideas. It can't do the same plot in the exact same way over and over again. And so in 1972... For the last three entries in the series, Dracula comes to modern day. Dracula AD 1972 is one that I never actually made it all the way through <laughs> until this week. I think I've twice started it. I never watched it, and every time that I read the 
log line, I'm like, well, this has got to be great, right? Dracula gets brought back to life in 1972 and has to deal with these wild hippies. And the film's famous for starting really coolly with a media res climax from the previous film, like a James Bond movie. <laughs> When Dracula gets killed by like a wagon wheel after wrestling with Van Helsing. But then again, you know, it takes a while until we take a drive through Dracula country. But we do get to hang out with some very funny hippies that are so hippie-ish that, you know, the rich old people of the house are in tears having to watch them do stuff like gyrate and play that rock and roll music. I was pretty psyched during the opening credits. I mean, all three of the times I've attempted to watch this movie, and successfully this time, all three of the times I've been psyched during the opening credits, you know, hearing that funky, like, 70s theme, you know, oh man, it's Dracula, but it's AD 1972. Maybe he's going to meet Goldmember, you know? <laughs> We're heavy-duty, like, 70s shit going on. But instead, you could trick me into saying oh yeah christopher lee didn't shoot any footage for this they just used stock footage from the previous dracula film because he never really leaves the castle that he's in i think the movie doesn't work for like a number of reasons one is that it's less interesting when the subtext becomes the text we all know that the previous dracula movies are in some way you know britain dealing with it's it's loss of superpower status and bubbling decadence and youth culture and sexual revolution and swing in London and all that stuff. And it becomes less interesting when you actually literalize that and have like this gang of like teenagers, including Johnny Alucard, who's sort of like the Charles Manson of the crew. Like if you're going to do that. Let's have Dracula be a fish out of water. Let's see Dracula do some 70s stuff. Let's see Dracula at a disco. Yeah, why isn't Dracula, like, fighting pimps and stuff like that? Like, that's what you want when you hear Dracula 1972. And I mean, obviously, just by the title of it, Dracula AD 1972, that's a stupid idea. Everybody knows it's a stupid idea. So lean into the stupidity. Like, let's have some fun. I mean, maybe they were just trying to keep it classy, I guess. Like, or probably more realistically didn't want to break out of the framework that they already had in fears that perhaps it would lead to uh, people reacting negatively towards this. I mean, cause it's a franchise that repeats itself over and over again because they kept making money. And if they keep making money, why would they change the template, which kind of leads to diminishing returns when it's the same movie over and over again, even the one that's supposed to be set in 1972 Give me funky Dracula. Now, I remember last Shocktober, Shocktober 2020, 2021, I, I saw the Slaves of Dracula. The Satanic Rites of Dracula? That's it. It's the Satanic Rites of Dracula, which is also set in the 70s. And I think I, I've already forgotten it. Of course I've forgotten it. But Dracula's trying to do some real estate deal in it. <laughs> Nothing more exciting than Dracula doing real estate deals. And he's going to cause a plague in London or something like that. I just remember in that one, there's a scene where Dracula is sitting behind a desk in like an office building. And I just remember thinking... This isn't what I want from Dracula. I want Dracula stalking a Victorian manor. I don't want him in a in the building from High Rise. <laughs> I think there's still ways to do it. But, I mean, watching all of these films this week, I think that, and much to my surprise, I enjoyed Dracula 1958 the most. And then I found it a law of diminishing returns as I went on. Oh, absolutely the same. And, by the way, I thought Dracula 1958 was a bit of a snooze. <laughs> but it had, like, it, it's beautifully made. Uh, the color is beautiful. The sets are beautiful. The actors are all great. It's got the best Christopher Lee Dracula stuff. The The scenes that Christopher Lee is in, in Dracula 1958, really have a sort of intensity to them. They sustain you through the long talky stretches. But yeah, I do agree that it's like 
a lot of diminishing returns after that. And I think probably my second favorite of the entire series is the last one that Christopher Lee's not in, which, uh, what's that, The Legend of the, the Seven, Seven Golden, Golden Vampires? vampires. <laughs> yes. yes. Peter Cushing's in it, and that's the Shaw Brothers Kung Fu Dracula movie, which, you know, also not great, but it's got uh, it's got fun stuff For in it. For everyone writing angry letters that we don't understand, we got it. You don't need to write us any letters. You know, go back to your subscription of Little Shop of Horrors, the magazine dedicated to hammer horror films that is somehow still stocked in all the indigo bookstores in canada well i'll also just say i mean hammer is a subject that i think we should return to at some point i mean i love hammer horror films there's a lot of good ones like the gorgon you know some of their later period ones or even some of the early ones that were like black and white suspense hitchcock ripoff films yeah i mean i was talking to uh, josh lewis from the sleazoids who recommended uh, never take sweets from a stranger and yesterday's enemy as two kind of like under the radar hammer horror movies that aren't associated with iconic characters. I mean, I think The Curse of Frankenstein is a lot of fun too. It's a big, vast subject. I would love to return to it at some point and try to get a real handle on it. Yeah, I like The Phantom of the Opera, Plague of the Zombies. It's just this week we were trapped in the Christopher Lee Dracula lane, which we found was very limiting by the time we reached the dead end. But what I will say is, you know, the lesson that you learn over and over again in Shocktober is... If you want to know about a society, you look at the horror movies that were popular at any given moment. And I think these movies do show you something about Britain. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Ben. And it's actually a long letter. So I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to grab some highlights here. But the topic is letter on the subject of Cronenberg's supposed conservatism. He mentions he's been a a fan of the show for a year and a half now. Can I just say right now, I should never be held to anything I ever said on the (laughs) podcast. Uh, I I was trying to fill the time. And uh, if you disagree with anything I've ever said, I I said it off the cuff. Well, he doesn't take it up with you, Will. He actually mostly takes it up with Robin Wood. And he mentions, I find myself still unconvinced on his claim about Cronenberg. The essential thesis is that, at the very least, Cronenberg's early films present views of sex and gender roles that are moralistic and reinforce a reactional patriarchal society. The larger thesis is that horror films can be classified into two categories, reactionary and progressive, with the progressive being horror films where the monster or villains win, which ultimately signals the start of a new, more progressive society. While I don't have much to say about the latter, I find his opinion on the former to be questionable. In my estimation, there are only two films in a filmography that could possibly be classified as fitting the reactionary description, Shivers and The Brood. And then he actually goes on in the letter to describe, you know, his opinion of it. Is it reactionary, et cetera, et cetera. But I think at the end of the day, it comes down to what me and Will said. If you disagree with us, we are wrong. You are correct in whatever assertion that you have. But can I also just say, what about Rabid? Doesn't Rabid kind of fit? He does mention in the email that, you know, casting Marilyn Chambers and Rabid and Cronenberg's general uh, crusade against Canadian film censorship is evidence enough against this narrative about him being a reactionary. Wood never really responded to Videodrome, Crash, and of course he couldn't because he had passed away, Cosmopolis and Crimes of the Future. Can I just say to that, I mean, casting Marilyn Chambers in a movie, crusading against censorship, fuck, the guy probably even votes liberal. I don't know. Like, there can be, you can be all those things and still have in the work a sort of unconscious reactionary streak that turns up. Now, I'm sorry, I don't want to paint like David Cronenberg or 
for his work as just as like just reactionary. I think like any great artist, there's a lot of stuff that's in it. Just because he personally feels one way about a lot of issues doesn't necessarily mean that he's not like working through other stuff in his art. You know, does that make sense? The letter writer mentions that he sees it as Cronenberg simply exploring his insecurities, just like everybody else does. And that doesn't necessarily mean that his films are reactionary. The letter writer mentions that The Brood, in his opinion, perhaps due to Wood's influence, is a movie that has garnered a completely unwanted reputation as misogynistic. Never mind the fact that the film clearly sympathizes to a certain extent with the childhood trauma of Nola and paints her for the majority of the runtime as someone simply struggling with horrific mental problems. I just think like all of, all of that's true. And like one of the reasons why he's great is because the movie's actually actually are complex and because he's in he's interrogating things i mean yeah, i don't think that you know labeling those films that way has lessened them or has made people not want to watch them less like they're still canonized classics all of the ones that we mentioned whether you consider them reactionary or progressive in the way that it tackles the subject matter and labeling films into two categories like Robert Woods does reactionary and progressive. I mean, that's not really something that we do. We don't like to put labels on films like that or be very dogmatic about the approach to these kind of pictures. That's right. We're equal opportunity offenders, man. We hate everyone <laughs> left and right. So uh, thank you very much for the letter. And our next letter is from Ryan Hefferman. And he writes, hey, Will and Justin. As a fellow virile, confidently heterosexually manly man, I often ponder the question of which male film stars I would nevertheless make sweet love to. <laughs> At this point, I've settled on two clear picks, Toshiro Mifune and Alain Delon. I'll get, I'll get even more specific since I'm sure you're about to ask Alain Delon from Rocco and his brothers and Toshiro Mifune from The Hidden Fortress. So the question is, which male film stars would you happily give up your unquestioned heterosexuality for? Big fan, sub to the Patreon, thanks for the awesome podcast, Ryan. None immediately leap to mind. It's tough because, you know, as a virile heterosexual man, I can theoretically see people as handsome, but I don't know if there's an attraction there. So Johnny Depp, like circa 1989, uh, has has really nice cheekbones and- Keanu Reeves from his Johnny Mnemonic period. Yeah. Or, you know, if you want to go with big burly men, I don't know, The Rock from Fast Five. Yeah, sure. I mean, honestly, it doesn't really matter what we answer, so- <laughs> No, it would just be a joke, whatever we say, so- So let's just say anything. Listen, me and Will, we're easy. Any major star, we get a story out of it, right? Yeah, <laughs> actually, that's right. I think uh, if, if Timothy Chalamet called me up and said- uh, would you like to make sweet love to me? I'd think, huh, that's a, what, why is he calling me? Why me of all people? I'm a big fan of the Important Cinema Club. Also, I have some stuff I disagree with you and I'd like to discuss as we make sweet love. You know, I'd probably say, Mr. Chalamet, you outrank me. You are a, a much more important person than myself, so I'm at your service. I will bring the peaches. It is completely consensual. Let's go. Our next letter is from Alex Rose and he goes, hey, Justin and Will. I know that you are both knowledgeable about film books, and I was wondering if you had any recommendations for directors' autobiographies that go film by film. During the pandemic, I picked up Brian Trenchard Smith's Adventures in the B-Movie Trade and made a point of watching each film as I went through the book. Wow, you are dedicated, Brian Trenchard Smith's filmography. Through also the self-published tome with a little rough around the edges, it gave a lot of insights on what I was seeing and cast some of Trenchard Smith's less prestigious projects, there are many, in a different light. I then tried to do the same thing with Michael Winner's autobiography. Because Winner is a worse director, writer, and all-around person than Trenchard Smith. For people that don't know, Brian Trenchard Smith directed The Amazing Man from Hong Kong, uh, Turkey Shoot, Dead End Drive-In, and then a lot of, um, some would say, uh, 
you know, lessening returns when it comes to the filmography. While Michael Winner, I mean, Brian Trenchard Smith is the Australian exploitation film director. He also uh, discovered Nicole Kidman in his classic film BMX Bandits. While Michael Winner is, of course, the British trash filmmaker extraordinaire. He directed Death Wish 1, 2, 3, as well as The Sentinel and many other trash classics. Also, a very bad man. And by all accounts, a piece of shit. A terrible person with a black little heart. The first thing that comes to mind to answer that question is actually not a book. It's the movie De Palma by uh, Noah Baumbach. And I think, was it Jake Paltrow? Because something in that movie where, like, that one goes film by film. And there are certain movies that it gives short shrift to. But I remember seeing that and thinking... It's extraordinary just what a what a career is. Like very few he at one point says in it, directors don't get to make their own careers. They don't get to choose their own careers. And and that's something that you get a strong sense of in that movie. All the things he did. Like, yeah, there's there's dress to kill, there's body double, and there's wise guys, and there's bonfire of the vanities, and there's uh, Mission Impossible. And you get a sense that a career is just a long, long thing with lots of ups and downs and compromises and turns and directions. So I don't know, that that movie is the first thing I would recommend. The thing about director's biographies is that, I mean, they're often looking back uh, to a career that is either over or on the skids. So there is a lot of like self-serving stuff. And the letter writer actually points out that, you know, most director biographies too at the end are like, oh, but my new movies are better. My old stuff is just okay. And it's like, no, you're wrong. Your old stuff is oftentimes better than your new stuff. I think the best ones are typically interview books, like This Is Orson Welles or Hitchcock Truffaut. Or like Douglas Sirk on Sirk. Or uh, Motern on Motern, you know, <laughs> the, the classics. Because then you have somebody kind of like questioning them and pushing them to consider their stuff. I actually really like Lars von Trier on von Trier. Because he is very aware of interview books and he's like comes uh, ready for it and even references that like, oh, Bergman's biography is full of shit. He's just making up lies in that book. And he's also cagey, but the interviewer has to kind of press him to get those answers out of him. I mean, like stuff like Woody Allen on Woody Allen. Man, we're going through all the bad men in this <laughs> talk. Allen's so full of shit. Like he's like, oh, no, you know, I never made a good movie. This movie was bad, blah, blah, blah. It's like, ah, fuck you. Woody Allen on Woody Allen. I mean, he's he's articulate to a point. Uh, he's a good interview to a point, but he's also somebody who, like, has a line that he says over and over again, and he's never challenged on that line. Well, Cirque on Cirque is interesting. It's one of the most famous, like, of those film books, because at the time of its publication, no one had really, I mean, I'm sure some people did, but it wasn't in the popular consciousness of these films are much deeper than their woman's pictures labels would lead you to believe. And Cirque can articulate that in a really engaging way. So if you haven't checked out that one, I would really recommend it. When it comes to director's biographies, I remember enjoying William Friedkin's biography, but he's also really full of shit that like, you know, he kind of glosses over <laughs> the uh, monstrous qualities that have been given to him uh, in such rags as Easy Rider, Raging Bull. So you don't really get the full picture of that. I mean, I've recommended Charlie Band's uh, biography before because I thought it was really fun. E even the fact that he admits that he was arrested at a convention for like, I think maybe bouncing checks or something like that. So, you know, you want them to be honest. You want them to go through their bad movies. And oftentimes they don't want to talk about those things, which is always a bummer. Like a William Friedkin. I remember reading the whole book and being like, wait a minute. 
he didn't even talk about that Chevy Chase comedy that he did. Like, it doesn't get mentioned once. It's like, what the hell? That's what people reading these books want to hear about. Deal of the century from 1983. Why would you talk about that? I mean, you're famous, Will, for skipping to the back to the bad movies when you read these kind of books, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, give me a biography of Bob Hope and I'm going straight to the private army of Sergeant O'Farrell or whatever the fuck that was called. Give me a book about Jerry Lewis and I'm going straight to which way to the front. I remember... Uh, enjoying Barry Sonnefeld recently wrote a biography that was a uh, very enjoyable where he talks in detail about shooting the porn films that he did for like a week so I recommend checking those out I read an interview with Abel Ferreira where he said he's working on his memoir what could that be Abel Ferreira is such an enigma like I'm continually fascinated by him is there anyone you wish would have written a memoir or Ed Wood wrote that book Hollywood Rat Race which has elements of memoir in it it's a how-to manual I would have liked it would have been nice if he was famous enough in his time where he would have written an actual book where he talked about what actually went into making those movies. And also Oscar Michaud would have been interesting to hear, like, you know, the first really prolific black filmmaker would have been interesting to hear him actually expound on all of the trouble that he went through to make all of those movies. The, the people I want to hear from are people like that, people who like really had to scrape together their movies. Yeah, like on that vein, uh, there's a great memoir by Larry Buchanan, a filmmaker that like no one likes. <laughs> the book has a great title of It Came From Hunger, Tales of a Cinema Schlockmeister. And if you don't know Larry Buchanan, like, uh, I mean, what are his famous films? Uh, Zontar. He did a bunch of Roger Corman remakes, didn't he? Uh, the Naked Witch is another famous one. Mars Needs Woman, uh, The Loch Ness Monster. And that's a book that you read it and you're like, oh, wow, this sounds great. He sweated and he poured his blood in every frame. And then you watch the film and you're like, what the hell is this? A great read. And on that note of Roger Corman, Roger Corman has a really fun memoir, too, even though that, you know, there's a lot of puff piece uh, elements to it as well. Yeah, I mean, Roger Corman's is good just because he's somebody who has a lot of great stories. So, you know, he can talk about when he was shooting the gunslinger and how it rained every day that they should have called it the mudslinger. Talk about making Little Shop of Horrors in uh, two and a half days. Uh, John Waters, both of his books both of his memoirs, I mean, Shock Value and Mr. Know-It-All, each have long chapters about each of the movies. And he's much like Roger Corman, where, like, you're not going to get, like, super, like, self-analysis from him, but you are going to get a lot of great stories. And actually, he's pretty candid about the business of movie making. He's pretty, he's pretty honest about the sorts of compromises he has to make and the ways that he worked with studios. And he's, he's quite upfront about what the box office failure of some of the movies felt like and navigating the long career that he's had. So I guess I'd recommend his books as well. The thing with any memoir, whether it be a director or anything, oftentimes it's the author having to put themselves, even if they won't admit it, into like the position of the hero of the story. So it's just like we said before, can't have the self-analysis that you would get in something like an interview where they actually have to hit turns that they don't expect and have to react to it while you know a memoir is massaged i really like the lloyd kaufman memoir which was ghost written by james gunn that one is a great read and i know i've recommended that one a bunch back in the past as well 
Would not recommend watching all of Lloyd Kaufman film. Do not read memoirs planning to watch all of the movies. <laughs> well, why? Don't do that. <laughs> like, you don't need to watch all of Larry Buchanan's films if you read his memoir. Oh, uh, you asked whose memoirs would I like to read? I could just talk about this all day. Uh, everyone, first of all. But uh, William Bodine, the guy who made like Ugh. 400 movies, including Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla and Billy the Kid meets Dracula's daughter. I mean, that was a guy who started in the silent era, was a huge A-list director in the silent era. That was you know making Bowery Boys movies was making Disney TV shows uh, touched every corner of entertainment would have loved to have read his memoir but of course nobody cared virtually no one even interviewed him that is a shame but at least we have the book written by his granddaughter so thank you very much for that letter and this week on our Patreon what are we talking about Will? we are talking about the most shocking Shocktober subject of all torture porn yes we watched Eli Roth's classic Hostel. Uh, you will be shocked to learn that one of us had never seen it before. And what could his opinion be of the film? Well, you'll have to check it out at patreon.com slash the important cinema club and pay $5 a month to find out. So, Justin, next week. We've been in Shocktober for a while. I think we need to get out and do something very different from Shocktober. So I am proposing a filmmaker whose work I have never seen and who I feel bad about having never seen his work, Peter Watkins. Yep, Peter Watkins, director of documentary-style dramas like Punishment Park or the Shocking the War game. So really, we're still staying in Shocktober about what a possible future could be. How? <laughs> so until then, my name's Justin Nicolou. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I'd just like to thank some of our new patrons who include Blue2001, Douglas Scoop Reinhardt, Joe Soul, Matthew Hall, Josh Gresh, Joe Signorelli, Ian Strayton, Ziad Boasi, Evan Gordon, Axley Steele, James Knight, Elsie Lewison, Michael Starrett, John Toes, Josh Gould, Alexander Ross, Joe Blevins, Nolan Tuck, Aaron Pickadesh, and Ashley Naftool. We could not keep doing this without your support. It is the literary event of the season, Will. And by that, I mean Quentin Tarantino has published a new book. Man, we should have a little like jingle Thank every time we talk about Quentin patrons. Tarantino. I mean, if you, you are our age, if you are uh, a self-styled movie buff, if you are us... Uh, then Quentin Tarantino looms very large in your consciousness. And he has never been more present these days than he ever has in his entire career. I've said this before, but it used to be Quentin Tarantino would make a movie every three to five years and you get a whole new like bunch of interviews where he would talk about all the movies that he was into and all the movies that inspired this new movie. And uh, then he'd go away for three or five years and you wouldn't hear from him. And like by the time he came around, you had you had appetite for him again. You wanted to hear what he'd been up to. But now not only is he on a ton of podcasts, he has his own podcast, probably the chief rival to our podcast. <laughs> I really don't think it's a rival to our podcast, but okay. Yeah, sure. His video archive. No, it's real competition. It's the Bay Street Video Podcast, of course, a still working video store. But yes, we hear from him a lot. And as Will discussed last time, he doesn't try to listen to Tarantino too much because when he, when Tarantino has an opinion that we don't agree with, 
boy, is he very um, strong with that opinion. Why is it frustrating when Tarantino has a hot take that you disapprove Maybe of? Maybe because it is he's so adamant about it when he talks about it. And you get the sense that like he is very rarely disagreed with when he has these hot takes. Yeah. So anyway, I am reading his new book, though, Cinema Speculation. And I, I am enjoying it. It's got a lot of personality. It's got a lot of heart. You can tell that nobody did any editing on it because it is just free-flowing. He makes up the grammar as he goes along. He makes up the style as he goes along. No images, no nothing in the book, like just pure text. It's, it's as if he is sitting there at the bar with you and just monologuing at you. It has that kind of structure. Like the essay about Dirty Harry starts with him talking about Don Siegel and then it turns into, you know, considering the politics of the movie. It doesn't have a shape exactly. It's It's kind of like one long stream of consciousness tube i kind of expected the book to be like very slick lots of images in between his words but nah it's just pure uncut tarantino straight from the vein and i think there is a lot of interesting biographical information i'm guessing you probably just jumped around to the movies you wanted to hear him talk about i've actually been reading it chronologically believe it or not really i think mostly because i wanted to see like how it developed. And because a lot of the book, I mean, if the book has a theme at all, it's he's interested in 70s cinema, specifically the movies that he was watching when he was when he was a kid, although maybe not entirely. I don't know if he actually watched Daisy Miller in a theater, but uh, he's, he's very interested in like the stuff that his his mom took him to see and that sort of thing. The book is full of just little rosebud moments. It seems like at this period in time, and I mean, he's been doing it for his entire career. Tarantino is like reflecting endlessly on his past as a moviegoer. I mean, that's all Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was. But he's getting really personal now in these kind of narrative going backs. Like, there's this one part that he talks about of seeing Dirty Harry in the cinema and that, like, when there was a guy coded as gay that appeared in the film, like everybody threw like slurs at him from the audience. Yeah, I mean, there's another part that really jumps out at me when he's talking about deliverance and the rape scene and deliverance. Like Tarantino writes about that scene so enthusiastically and he writes about seeing that scene as a kid and you think the scene in the basement in Pulp Fiction or the rape fantasy scene in Hateful Eight, those scenes come straight from this incident. Him as a kid seeing this scene from Deliverance and the power of that scene. He talks about one of his mother's boyfriends taking him to see black exploitation movies and in particular going to this black movie theater to see a Jim Brown movie on opening night and he writes about how the enthusiasm of the crowd, the electricity in the room, that was a moment that he always wanted to capture when he was making movies. He wanted to give that to an audience. And I mean, to people who, I mean, so much has been said about Tarantino and race. Uh, So much armchair psychoanalysis has been done about him. And this is more fuel for the fire. I mean, you can say in that moment, it's like he wanted to identify both as like, the black audience. He wants to be both the oppressed and the abolitionist. You know, he wants to be somebody like providing the entertainment to liberate them and empower them. And as a result, you get a movie like Django Unchained. I'm not saying that like in a condemnatory way. I'm just saying it because he's got a unique brain. Nobody else has a brain like him. And it's interesting to swim around in that brain for 300 pages. What I appreciate about like this book is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood book, even all of his podcast appearances, is it does the good thing of like demystifying him as a person because it's easy to idolize Tarantino and when you hear all these opinions he's like he's just a guy that has good opinions he has bad opinions he's very passionate about you really understand like what movies 
he is attracted to and what his blind spots are. And I think that's fun. I think that, you know, humanizing someone good or bad is always a plus to me instead of them just being this like figure that's held from afar. You don't have to listen to him if you don't want to, which, you know, uh, I'll scroll through his podcast and be like, maybe not this episode today, but it's nice to know that it's out there. I mean, I assume what you're thinking of is that feeling like when we were kids and you'd see him interviewed, he seemed to be somebody who like knew everything about movies. And then you read the book and you realize that, no, he he doesn't. He has, um, he knows a lot. He is smart uh, and he has an interesting perspective. Certain of the things that he dismisses out of hand or certain of the things that certain of the assumptions he doesn't interrogate, as you say, they humanize him. They show that he is somebody who doesn't know everything. And there's a scorching hot take on every page. Oh, my God. I mean, I just I just got to the part where he said that Hitchcock's frenzy was a piece of crap. The part where he says that Brewster McLeod is one of the worst movies ever made. Uh, I mean, I don't love Brewster McLeod or anything, but I mean, holy shit, one of the worst movies ever made. <laughs> I love that. These opinions are just out in print, right out there. This is kind of like Will writing or me writing when we were being published in Zs. Death Race 2000 doesn't really work as a satire. Okay, the, the chapter that really got me was he has a chapter talking about Kevin Thomas, the LA Times film critic, who was somebody who reviewed a lot of the exploitation movies, and he makes a, a persuasive case that Kevin Thomas, as much as Roger Corman, was responsible for some of these filmmakers like Jonathan Demme ascending to the next level. But then he takes pages and pages in this chapter, ostensibly a tribute to Kevin Thomas, to just like settle scores with various critics who wrote for the LA Times that he hated. Like <laughs> he goes off for paragraphs about Sheila Benson. A critic who, by the way, died earlier this year. <laughs> oh, my God. Just talking about how much he hated her and just going on and on and on. And then he talks about Kenneth Turan, who kept giving him bad reviews. And you think, my God, you know, this man is the most famous filmmaker since Spielberg. And he's sitting in his mansion, like stewing over Kenneth Turan's review of Pulp Fiction. That's something that I always find amazing about the podcast is that him, Roger Avery, even Eli Roth, like you mentioned a film critic and they know what magazine or newspaper they wrote for and what period they wrote for. I would just give you a blank stare if you asked me. I'd be like, huh, film critic? I don't know. Like there's no monolithic film critics anymore. Except for us, of course. Does Tarantino know who Jonathan Rosenbaum is? That's a question that I would like answered. He must know who Jonathan Rosenbaum is. Has he read Jonathan Rosenbaum? I mean, Rosenbaum hates him a lot more than Kenneth Turan does, I bet. Tarantino runs around the circles of like Bertrand Tavernier, so, or, I mean, he did. So he must know who he is, right? I'm curious. Tarantino, he was interested in that chapter about what a mainstream critic could do. And I mean, J-Row was never really a mainstream critic, right? That's true. I think it's different, yeah, when the guy from the LA Times is calling you like the human embodiment of the dumbing down of society rather than like the guy for the Chicago Reader. So what else do you want from Tarantino? Will, in terms of like this second phase of his career, which he's talked a lot about that he was going to do, I'm kind of shocked he's actually doing it. But, you know, I'm taking it with a smile on my face. Uh, I'd like to see him challenge himself a little bit. It's nice to see him write about the things that he's enthusiastic about. But, you know, every now and then he'll drop an opinion about an art filmmaker. You know, like in the book, he re reiterates his opinion about how Truffaut is like a bumbling Ed Wood level incompetent. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. I know. It's unbearable. But every now and then, like, you know, once upon a time in Hollywood, the book had that whole passage about Kurosawa, who he clearly likes. I would like to see him, you know, stretch a little bit and talk about art cinema. I I'm curious to hear more of his opinions in that realm, even though I'm sure a lot of them would drive me insane. 